Yeah, I got to thinking about it. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday, but no, no, it's Super Sermon Sunday. So I'm hoping uh, the message today and the words that we read out of the Bible uh, impact you that way so that uh, you go home and you're feeling like you've uh, absorbed some of God's word and maybe got some other insight into what he has for us and what he's done for us and why and what are what the benefits are for us and what our future is coming to understand we don't need to go to a, a fortune teller to learn out learn what our future is we need to seek the one who is going to create our future who's going to direct us into our future <laughs> Doesn't mean the sermon's going to go on for three hours, though, does it? Well, I just have to get done before five. What's the half time? It's the half time, time, so. Starts at four thirty. We are continuing uh, this week in our chronological look at uh, journey Jesus' journey to the cross, and this week. he begins to make that final journey. You know, a lot, Jesus went a lot of times back and forth between his hometown and Jerusalem. And, and now he's getting ready to take off on that final journey that will culminate on uh, that day where he's crucified for that hour that he came. So on this map here, I have arrows there because I'm sure uh, most of you can't see the small print. But it's a, the top arrow is Galilee. And that's the region that Jesus uh, stayed in and lived in. At the very top, you see Capernaum and Nazareth up there. Coming down, um, he works his way towards Jerusalem. We're going to see how he was coming down in Jordan. He starts to tell us uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan down here, referencing Jericho. And you would have to kind of climb uphill to get to Jerusalem. And then the Samaritans play into uh, today's message as well. So just kind of helps to uh, get a little insight into what it looked like for them in their time. What we'll see, what we learn, is that for the, uh, the apostles and the disciples, excitement gives way to disappointment. We won't see all of that happen today, but so many of them were excited, thinking, wow, now is the time that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to take over physically and sit on the throne and kick the, the Romans out. And we, we Jews, are going we're gonna to finally have control of our own country and our own people. And they were thinking more in terms of a physical kingdom and a warrior king. And we'll see over the next week or two how that kind of gives way to disappointment because that's not really what Jesus was talking about, at least at that point in time. And along the way, Jesus gives some very valuable lessons to the uh, disciples and the apostles. And we too, they're written down for us so that we can learn. But Jesus picked these guys out. Um, almost seems random, but no, we... Just what we read this morning, Jeremiah 29. God knew what he was doing. He picked each one of these apostles. And they really didn't understand this full picture, this future that they were heading into. Jesus did. 
So along this journey, when he's traveling with them, he's teaching them, he's discipling them, he's coaching them. So if you will um, turn your Bibles to Luke 9, and we'll begin with verse 51 through 62. We're going to bounce around just a little bit between the, the passages, trying to fit it into a chronological order. Luke 9:51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So again, just to remind you, he's he's up north, he's in the Galilee area, and the days had come where he knew <coughs> to start heading south. 52. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans. To make arrangements for him. Now remember, the Samaritans were the northern half of the divided kingdom of Israel, and they were uh, looked down upon by the Jews in the southern kingdom. They considered them um, not quite as smart or religious, half breed, <coughs> because in fact, years ago, the Assyrians had come in and conquered and intermarried with them. And so there was animosity between the north and the south. So Jesus sends him into a village to make arrangements for him. 53, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. This is maybe real um, subtle. The reason they were upset that he was heading towards Jerusalem, the reason they didn't receive him because of that is they were also being directed by God. You know, God's plan was that he goes down to Jerusalem. He has to go there in order for the prophecy and the crucifixion, all that to happen. But um, they, again, were, you know, they felt um, put down and oppressed by their brother and sister Jews in the southern kingdom. And so you can imagine them thinking, well, if he's, not going to put us first if he doesn't exalt us and he's heading down there, you know, let him go. We don't need to receive him. 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I don't know about you, but I admit to having this thought <laughs> many a time. <laughs> Uh, but look at how Jesus answered. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives altogether, but to save them. How many times do we hear this criticism about Jesus? And, you know, it's been happening since he came. But he is a, a loving God, compassionate God, full of grace and mercy. And he's come here to save us. And we, we share the gospel. We share love, grace, and mercy with people with, that are not in the kingdom. They're not believers. And we hear about their, their anger towards Jesus because they think he just came to you know, make them feel bad, to, to destroy them or send them to hell or whatever. But it just says right here, 
that he came <coughs> not to destroy us, but to save us. We have to remember that. We have to. We can get all caught up in all the back and forth and the tip of the tap, but the bottom line is he came to save us. 57. Well, last part of 56. And they went on to another village. So the people didn't receive them, so they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, Yeah, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Does that seem a little odd? Kind of an odd response for Jesus to make to somebody saying, hey, I'll follow you. I mean, that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to follow him. But Jesus can see into the hearts of men. He can see into our hearts. Even when we don't quite realize what our heart is saying. And he knew that this person was thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going along and we're going to be living high on the hog and uh, the palace and whatever, because they were thinking, uh, you know, he was going to have this physical kingdom and be a warrior king. But Jesus wanted them and us to realize when we follow him, we have to be all in or not. You know, we have to be ready to give up whatever it is that needs to be given up to follow him. We're, we're, we don't get into following Jesus because. We're going to be living fat on the hog. If anything, it might be the opposite. Uh, 59. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Again, in our society today, we might think, well, this is kind of harsh, Jesus. I mean, don't you respect the family? Shouldn't It seems right and proper that I should go bury my father. But if we understand the context here, when in the Jewish uh, society, it was his obligation to bury his father, but the Bible doesn't say that the father was even dead yet. So the eldest son would need to wait until the father died, so he would have to be there, ready for that time, that service, that obligation of his family to bury his father. And we don't even know how much more time before this guy was, his dad was going to die. But that's sort of irrelevant in the in Jesus' answer, and what is it? Let the dead bury the dead. What? That seems harsh. But Jesus is saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. And what he's saying in that is, the most important thing in your life needs to be me, Jesus. It needs to be following me and doing what I ask you to do. And sometimes... It may not make sense. Sometimes it's, it's going to go against the grain or against culture and tradition. But the most important thing is to follow Jesus. Find out what he wants and do it. We remember in some of his other sermons, he says to 
If you don't hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, you're not worthy of following me. Wow, Jesus, come on. But again, he's saying he needs to be number one over our families, even over our spouses. Our spouses do not come ahead of Jesus. Jesus is first. And then in 60 or 61, another also said, I will follow you, Lord. Permit, first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Seems perfectly reasonable. You know, they're probably out away from where this person lives. I'll follow you down there. But let me go back and say goodbye to everybody. And he's saying the same thing to him. 62. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So if we, when we're saying, I want to follow you, Jesus, tell me what to do, show me where to go, point me in the direction, I'm following you. But if we're constantly looking back and hanging on to what's back there, if we're looking back and wanting to go back to that, we're guilty of this. We are guilty to putting our hands on the plow and turning back. I mean, that's a farming vernacular where, you know, if you're going along and you're looking back, you know, your row is going to start being crooked. It's just the same with you driving down the road texting. You're going to be all over the road. You know, people driving behind you know you're texting because you're, you're smart. Or if you're driving, look in the rearview mirror. And you focus on the rearview mirror because, you know, there's a car behind you with some lights on the top. <laughs> and you're looking back there. Jesus wants us to put him first and just keep going. Keep going. Don't worry about what's behind you, what you're leaving, what you have to give up. So if the lights are flashing, don't pull them. Yeah, you can pull them. Pull on that when they catch you. <laughs> so this would kind of, in modern vernacular, this would be kind of like the person that's sort of like, well, I got plenty of time to accept Christ, and I know I should, but first I'm going to go like one last party, or yeah. I'm going to go you know, do this thing I know I'm not supposed to do once I become a Christian and then, you know, I'll, you know, I got time to get there. Is that kind of what That's a great point. is going on in here yeah. is that they're just like making excuses. I'll get there eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to point out again what you were reading. Uh, Jesus doesn't refer to himself as the son of God. He calls himself the son of man. Well, he uses both terms um, and he is both. Yeah. Um, but he, he wouldn't exist if it wasn't for man's worship for him. That's yeah. kind of what I get out of that. Like he, he is who he is because of us. Well, the son of yeah. man is uh, the term that he used probably most frequently about himself. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So now let's jump ahead to Luke 17. <clears throat> and we're going to read 11 through 19. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So in your translation, it might say he was walking along the border. So he was coming south from that where that top arrow is, kind of walking through this arrow area where it's kind of right in between them. 
As he entered the village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And that was the custom. If you had leprosy, you had to stay at a distance from other people, and you had to yell out, unclean, unclean. So they would know that you had leprosy, because uh, if you let them catch your disease, then you were in trouble as well. Um, 13, and they raised their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So that is completely opposite of what they would be saying to other people, you know, unclean, unclean. 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Why would he say that? Well, if you remember back in the Law of Moses, that is what you had to do. You, um, were, you were segregated out, you were isolated out, and you had to be gone for seven days, and then you could not come back into the group of people again until the priest, you showed yourself to the priest, and he pronounced you clean. If you weren't clean from leprosy, you had to go back out and wait until finally you were pronounced clean. So Jesus is telling him to do that. It's kind of fascinating, really. I mean, he could have healed them right there, right? And what we see time and time again where he's done that. But he, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. So Jesus had some other things in mind here that he wanted to do to um, expand his message out a little bit further. So there was 10 of them. And as they were going, as they were going to show themselves to the priest, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, <laughs> glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his feet, face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. <laughs> Again, this is interesting. So ten of them are getting healed. They walk away. Says go. In other words, he's wanting obedience out of them. He's wanting them to follow what he says first. Go. He could have healed them right there, but no. Go and show yourself to the priest and them. And this applies to our life even today. You know, Jesus wants to do some things in our lives, but we have to take that step of faith. We have to obey his word. And if we do, we will see Jesus deliver. So often we'll say, well, wait a minute. First, if you'll make sure I have enough money, my car is working, and you know, have what I need, yeah, then I'll get out there and do that. You know, if I have a monthly paycheck and a pension, yeah, then I'll go out and be a missionary and I'll go out and share the word of God. We we want God to perform first. But Jesus is saying, show me your faith by going, by starting to walk. So this one was a Samaritan. So Jesus answers and says, we're not ten clans? Was, but the nine, where are they? Where are these other nine? But was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? That's how they thought of the Samaritans. They were foreigners. 
it's intriguing that we just read how the villages in Samaria didn't receive him, so he continued on. And you know the apostles are following, and they're the ones that just asked, Jesus, should we call down fire on these heathens that just don't believe, they don't want to receive you? And yet, Jesus, in his savvy way of dealing with us, gives us an example of loving those that don't even love him. Love them and serve them. And and look at, he he points out that the Samaritan, the one that they hated, was the one who came back and thanked God and gave glory to him, which we are all to do. All ten of them were supposed to do that, but they didn't, just that one Samaritan. <clears throat> so because he called him a foreigner, we we can um, safely believe the other nine were not foreigners. They were Jews. In the last verse, 19, and he said to this one that had come back, Stand up and go. Because remember, he was worshiping Jesus. Fell on his face to worship Jesus. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. It wasn't where he was from. It wasn't the things that he had done. It wasn't really anything that he said other than giving God the glory for what he had done. Your faith has made you well. If we're expecting Jesus to heal us, to fix us, we have to have faith in him and what he has said. Your faith has made you well. Don't you think this is kind of foreshadowing to the... Like, because he, it says he healed all of them physically, mm-hmm. and yet this guy who came back, when he says, your faith has made you well, it's it's almost like what you see with the Jews and the Gentiles, that perhaps he is referring <clears throat> to, like, y'all got physical healing, but because he recognized who the healing came from, this guy, this foreigner, got spiritual healing as well, mm-hmm. and, and forgiveness. And so you kind of see that parallel to what you see with the Jewish people where you have they have the 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 obedience or the attempted obedience to the law, but they're so blind to Jesus that they're not getting the spiritual healing from seeing who he is and what he is and glorifying God. Absolutely. Um, this this man was spiritually healed too. He, he, we can trust by the scripture here that he received that eternal life that Jesus promises. We, he's heading to that point. Jesus knows he's heading to that point of crucifixion where because of him taking on our sin, we can be healed, spiritually healed, knowing that uh, this body that we have now, we're not going to be stuck with it down the road. Uh, the places we're living, no, there's, God's got a much better place for us. So, um, Jesus came to save us, to heal us from our sin, heal us from uh, a destiny headed towards hell. So, yeah. Um, Back to Luke 10. 
Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. So we can kind of picture him sending them out, and he's, they're going ahead, they're going to these cities and preaching the kingdom of God, and, and Jesus, the Son of Man, is coming, and let's get ready. And uh, verse 2, he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. <clears throat> this is kind of interesting when you think about when you think about harvest. What do we what do we know about a harvest? A harvest is we are collecting, we are reaping, we're using mature plants that are ready with whatever fruit or grain or nut that they're supposed to produce. What we aren't doing is planting the seed. The seed has already been planted. It has sprouted, it has grown, it's matured, so it's ready for the harvest. And it's fascinating that Jesus is telling them to go out and recognize that there's not many harvesters available, but if you're gonna pray, that, pray for that, that there will be more harvesters. What does that mean to us? I think that um, we, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too, we focus so much on throwing seeds, introducing. It's interesting to me uh, <clears throat> with gardens. Um, I had one year that <laughs> Kim helped me, but I mean, all of a sudden, all these seeds, I mean, you know, I'm get, getting a basket every three or four days of collard greens or whatever, and it, it just keeps coming. I mean, and it comes so fast that if you don't have enough people to help you pick it, it's, it's gone. It's wasted. So you need to have harvesters in the field because if you don't get it when it's time, it's it's over with. Yeah. So we definitely need to pray that that there's there's harvesters <coughs> and time for for the harvest. Absolutely. Hungry people for the man of Jesus. And we've got a group of people here and, and we should be harvesters as well. So what is the spiritual context of what we're talking about here in harvesting? It's a it's a spiritual harvesting. In other words, as I said, um, we may be focused too much on planting seeds and sowing seeds and forget the harvest part of it. There comes a time where we need to harvest. Yeah. What do we mean by that? Um, to, in, a, in a Bible sense, to uh, plant the seed, but also learn from that growth mm -hmm. and further educate yourself. And we've got to be getting those weeds out of there. And there comes a time when it's time to pick that fruit. So what that means is we need to talk to the people whom we've plant, been planting seeds in. You know, are they ready? Are they ready to say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior? 
And, and I think sometimes we forget to ask if they're ready. To see, are you ready to follow Jesus? And like these people, you know, there's no turning back. I mean, if you're ready, you're just going to forget that stuff. So, as it was brought up, the end times, we're living in the last days, I would say the last of the last days, the end times are coming, and it's time to also focus on those that we've built relationships with over the years to see, are they ready? Are they ready to surrender to Jesus? Uh, verse 3, go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Peace be to this house. Not judgment be on this house. Not um, get your act straight so you can be saved. <clears throat> on this house, peace be to this house. And again, that's kind of a way of harvesting, isn't it? I mean, when, we, when we're born again, shouldn't we expect that we now have peace with Christ? Yeah. Six, if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. In other words, they will receive you in peace and you will have this spiritual fellowship with them and you will notice it, you will sense it, you will feel it. But if not, if they're not a man of peace, you will know that there's conflict. There's no reception there. There's no fellowship. There's maybe anger and opposition. And your peace that you put out will return to you. What do you do then? Well, if if that they receive you as a man of peace, stay in that house eating and drinking. What they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. So this fellowship grows. You stay in their house with them. You have to drop your pride. This is why Jesus sent them out with nothing. So they couldn't say, hey, don't worry about it. I got a tent in my backpack and I got some, you know, trail mix and I got everything I need. He wanted them to go out needing things so that when somebody offered that hand of fellowship, that hand of peace, they would accept it. They would come in and then that fellowship can grow. You begin to disciple one another. Um, you begin to have an opportunity to share more about Christ. The laborer is worthy of his wages. So, you know, don't feel bad because in many ways, when somebody wants to offer you something as a hand of fellowship, as a uh, part of this process of eating and drinking with them and staying with them, if you say no, if you reject that offering, if you reject that fellowship, what have you done? You have robbed them. You have robbed them. They wanted to do something that Christ gave them the desire to do. Mm -hmm. And when you're too proud and you say, no, sorry, 
I don't have need of anything. You're robbing that person of a spiritual blessing. That's a little different than you normally hear, huh? Yes, sir. Hey, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out onto the streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. <laughs> Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. What is he referring to there? I think we all remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Lot and how fire did come down from heaven and it did torch up and burn up the whole cities except for Lot and his family who had just narrowly escaped. So if we're not received, if we're sowing seeds, if we're trying to harvest and we're not received, uh, Jesus is not saying, don't keep wasting your time and hammering on them. Just move on. Because there are others that he has already uh, that he wants to save. And the point is, he knows who he's going to save. We don't. We just kind of have to be obedient and get out there and do these things. He continues in verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. What is that about? Why is he talking to cities like they're people? What did he do in these cities? Well, remember up, up north here, where that top arrow is, there, that's where Chorazin is, that's where Capernaum, uh, Bethsaida, and that's also where the Mount of Beatitudes is. Remember that Sermon on the Mount? He did that there. These people had witnessed and heard Jesus in his great form and all that he had done. They'd seen miracles firsthand, not just heard about them, but seen them. And yet, many of them refused to come to him. They still wanted to reject him. And he's, he's comparing it, saying, you know, Tyre and Sidon, you know they're pagan cities. But if miracles that you saw had been done there, they would have repented and come to Christ. That's quite a statement. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. That's the town that Jesus was raised in. He spent a lot of time. His ministry home was there in Capernaum. How is it that they didn't all believe It's interesting how he talks to these cities like they're an individual, like a person. And it got me to thinking, what would Jesus say about Pagosa Springs? Stinks like salt. That's some deep, that's some deep hot 
And, and we each have a part to play in that, that answer. Because we make up Bogosa Springs. Bogosa Springs is a geographical place with people in it. So we all have a, a part to pay, play in this solution. So let us uh, live our lives so that if we were going to be mentioned by Jesus, if Bogosa Springs would be mentioned by Jesus, he'd be uh, giving us credit for having repented and followed him and lived like he says to live. Okay, where am I at? Verse 16. Okay. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You see that circle there? So when we go out to share the gospel or to harvest, does everybody receive us and say, ha, I am so glad you came by. Come on in. <laughs> not, not too often. It does happen. Kim and I have gone out uh, handing out these little uh, goodie bags. We go knock on the door, and inside we have a magnet for the church, and this this month we have some cookies and a couple of goodies in there, and we invite them to come to church. And some of them welcome us in, and we get talking, 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 and pretty soon we have to say, well, we got to get going. And others, you know, don't, don't want to talk to us. They don't even open the door. We know they're in there. We hear them. But they don't open the door. So we just put the bag on the door handle and walk away. Uh, speaking of that, over the next two weeks, I want to go out once a week for an hour or two to do this. I've got some more bags and things to hand out. If you'd like to come with me and have the experience of knocking on a door with the excitement of not knowing if you're going to get rejected or invited in, <laughs> you know, let me know. And I'll take you with me. I think it's fun. I think it's a blast. Okay. I believe you would. Yeah. All right. Um, make sure I have your number after church. I sure would. Okay. There's a clipboard for that right there, the yellow piece of paper. Oh, that you can put your number yeah. Just a little PSA there. Does it count? Does it come with a pen? Yeah, yeah, and the silver pen. But it, it I, I'm telling you, I think it's fun. Uh, it, it's, no telling what, what you're going to hear. Um, at any rate, um, our human nature is, you know, if they reject us, we want to, we kind of get feeling down. We take it personal, right? Mm -hmm. But Jesus is trying to encourage us to say, you know, if they're, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me and even my father who sent me. And we're not going up to the door to tell them how bad they are. We're going up to say Jesus wants to save you. And we want you to be part of our family, our fellowship. But sometimes it's just hard to believe. Why wouldn't people say, oh, yeah, sign me up. Free breakfast. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so verse 17. So the 70 that had been sent out to these cities to prepare them for Jesus to visit return. And they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
And Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. <clears throat> they came back with joy. I almost wonder if they didn't come back with a little bit of pride in their heart, you know, a little bit of feeling powerful and, wow, that's all me. You know, we, we could be tempted to do that. So we have to give credit to Jesus for anything that happens when we're knocking on the door or when we're helping people to food pantry, we see people transform. We have to give credit to Jesus. He's the one that it's due. Jesus is trying to get us to focus on the right thing, and that is rejoice that your names are written in that book of life that's in heaven. Remember, we've talked about the resurrection. We've talked about the great right throne judgment. And those who are resurrected from Hades and they stand before Jesus, if their name is not written in the book of life, the book of the Lamb, they are sent to Hades, along with hell, along with Satan, along with the demons. But if your name is written in the book of the Lamb, you are not judged. You stay in heaven with Jesus. <clears throat> All right, so let's see. Give a couple more verses here. At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. This is interesting. The Holy Spirit had not yet come on the day of Pentecost if you're putting the timeline together here. And Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit is God and he's eternal, just like Jesus and the Father are. So Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus, because you're sitting here, because you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've done that, it's because Jesus <coughs> has revealed the Father in heaven to you through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> what does that mean? It means he loves you. He wants you. You're accepted. 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Jesus is acknowledging to the Father the spiritual sight that was given to the apostles in the setting here. When we talked last week about spiritual hearing, where those who are the sheep of Jesus will hear his voice and will follow him. And so 
Jesus is pointing out to the disciples, this is an amazing thing that you guys have seen. You have no idea how many people really wanted to see. In fact, the Bible says the angels in heaven look down to they marvel. They want to understand what's happening with people. How can they get to go through salvation and sanctification and angels don't? They long to see what we are able to experience. All righty. Um, I'm not going to go through it, but the verses 38 through uh, 37, I think it is, in, uh, no, 25 through 37. Um, Jesus begins to tell this parable of the Good Samaritan. We're all super familiar with it. But again, it's the Samaritan that did what we should do if we're going to be a neighbor. And so it wasn't so much, you know, Jesus repeating the commandment to love your neighbors yourself, but also be a neighbor. Be, you know, so it's one thing to love them, but we've got to make it happen with action. So this, the parable was saying the Samaritan, who you guys all hate, was the one that acted most like what I want to see. He's the one that was like a neighbor. He's the one that acted like a neighbor. So, if we're going to be um, commended by Jesus, it ought to be because we're being a neighbor. And there's many ways to do that, that Jesus wants us to do. Um, you know, the food pantry is a super simple way to be a neighbor to someone. Uh, giving rides to those who don't have a ride because they lost their license for drunk driving, give them a ride. You're being a neighbor. Um, they're out hitchhiking or whatever. You know, be a neighbor. Um, if, if you know that they can't come get food, go take them a box of food. Be a neighbor. There's so many ways that we can be a neighbor. And just like Jesus was saying, to this, the disciples, you have no idea the great stuff that you've seen because other people want to see it. In the same way, we, I think, don't realize and don't appreciate the opportunity that we've been given living here in Austin Springs. People that have needs are right around us. You know, if you live in a gated community, everybody's got a new fancy house and stuff, it's a little bit more difficult. But we're here in Aspen Springs. It's a cakewalk to be a neighbor. Amen? All right, I want to just finish up with Jesus'. Doesn't this also just reflect back to the other thing where the only one that came back and worshiped was this American as well? And they're the ones that didn't want to receive Jesus. Remember the woman at the well? Yeah. She was a Samaritan. And... So this, I mean, for, I guess when you, you have to put it in a cultural context, like this should have been, like, ultimately convicting to the, to the Jewish heart that these people that they reviled were behaving how God wanted them to. But you also wonder, you see that reversed um, reaction of them um, becoming angry. And, and instead of having that contrite 
convicted heart, they actually, it hardens their heart mm-hmm. even more. Because it was the, what got the conversation started was a Sadducee saying, you know, he knew the answer and yet trying to, he it says he was trying to justify himself by asking who the neighbor is. And then Jesus trots out the Samaritan. And um, yeah. it's kind of an interesting parallel that goes through there that you see what, what should actually be convicting can have the opposite effect of hardening their hearts. Yeah. And that, I think that's one of the things that kind of crops up when you're taking things chronologically. It puts them a little bit closer together. You see the connections that Jesus was making. I wanted to finish up with the last few verses here. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. This is how Jesus kind of finishes up this time period we're in. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. You have revealed them to the infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So we just read that, but look how he finished it up. In 28, says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this is, uh, Jesus drawn this contrast. You know, if you're a Jew and you're trying to follow the law, it was not easy. They had like 600 laws to follow. I think all of us from Aspen Springs would say we have a hard time following a dozen of them. He's saying his yoke is easy. In other words, if you take his yoke upon you, if you agree to follow him, to be his disciple, to learn from him, to try to follow him and do the things he says, it's going to be easy because he's there with you. You're yoked with him. And he invites us in. If you are weary of life, you feel like you've been beaten down, things aren't going right, uh, maybe you have mental problems where you just feel depressed. He's saying, my yoke is easy. Come to me. Jesus is the solution. He's compassion. And you will find rest. Not, I'm probably a better solution than most of these other things that you could do. No, come to me. You will find rest. If you're weary and heavy laden. All right, well, praise God. Let's gather around and pray for one another.